Good morning. Um, there's two readings this morning. So um, the first one is Matthew, Matthew chapter 28. If you don't have a Bible, but you would like to follow it, if you just raise your hands and the uh, hospitality team will come, uh, come around and uh, deliver a Bible into your lap. Um, Matthew 28, that can be found on page 946. And um, just while you're, you could put one finger in Luke 16. That's what we're going to after. The Great Commission. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Then moving across to Luke chapter 16. I'm beginning to read at verse 19. That's page 992. The rich man and Lazarus. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them 
so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Right, let's pray for you, Mike. Father, thank you for Mike for his uh, ministry uh, there at Oakley Community Church and now this morning his ministry here with us and we ask, Lord, that his words would be the word of God to us and would bear fruit in our hearts and lives. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Greetings from um, your friendly neighbourhood church, Oakley Community Church, not too far away from here. All waving and saying hi to you, I'm sure, from where they are. Um, Continuing our um, our series this morning uh, on values, uh, our values here at St Barnabas, but also our values uh, across the board to the church plants that go out from here, uh, which includes obviously Oakley Community Church and um, uh, Church at Five. And we've been looking at um, the up and uh, in, uh, and uh, today we're looking at the out. And um, uh, I want to begin by sharing um, a parable with you this morning about um, evangelism and how the church's perspective on what should be its primary function can subtly shift over time. So the parable goes uh, like so. On uh, on a dangerous sea coast where shipwrecks often occur... There was once a little crude life-saving station. Where is there? Uh, the building was just a hut, and there was only one boat. But the few devoted members kept the constant watch over the sea, and with no thought for themselves, went out day and night, tirelessly searching for the lost. Many lives were saved by this wonderful life-saving station, so it became very famous. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area wanted to become associated with the station and give of their time, their money, and their effort for the support of its work. New boats were bought, and new life-saving crews were trained, and the little life-saving station grew. Some of the members of the life-saving station, however, were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. So they replaced the emergency cots and beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members and they began to decorate it beautifully and they furnished it exquisitely because they now used it as some sort of club. A few members were now uh, a few fewer members were now less interested in going to sea on life-saving missions. So they hired lifeboat crews to do this work. 
The life-saving motto still prevailed in the club's decorations. It was still up there uh, on the walls. And there was a liturgical lifeboat uh, in the room as well, where the club held its initiations. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in loads of cold, wet, and half-drowned people. They were dirty, they were sick, and some of them had black skin, and some of them had yellow skin. The beautiful new club was considerably messed up as a result. So the property committee immediately had a shower, uh, a shower house built outside the club, where victims of the shipwrecks could be cleaned up before being allowed inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities as being unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. Some members, however, insisted upon life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out they were still called a life-saving station. But they were finally voted down and told, well, if, if, if they wanted to save the lives of various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could go off and begin their own life-saving station a little way down the coast, coast which they did. As the, years, <clears throat> as the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that occurred in the old one. It evolved into another exclusive club just for its members. So in protest, yet another life-saving station was founded. And history continued to repeat itself again and again. And if you visit today that coastline, you will find a number of exclusive clubs all the way along its shoreline. Shipwrecks continue to be frequent in those waters, but most of the people drown. A simple, striking illustration of the history of the church. The work of life-saving, the work of evangelism, is the most essential work that the church will ever do. Sadly, for many churches, it's the last thing on their agenda, and for some, it's not even on the agenda. Too many have become cosy, exclusive clubs for their members with little regard for those outside of their walls. They just don't know what to do with them. Not long after Oakley was planted, um, a church uh, in our area... Um, somebody walked into a, a church, in, not our church, in our area. They walked in and they said uh, to the minister there, um, uh, I, I want to I find out more about Jesus. And the minister said, oh, you've come to the wrong place then if you, if you want to find out more about Jesus here. So you want to find out about Jesus, then maybe you should go over to Oakley Community Church. Um, true story. The greatest concern to the heart of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is evangelism, saving those drowning in a sea of darkness. And I want this morning, um, in regards to that, to give us three reasons that I hope will help motivate us to share our stories of faith with the people that God has placed around us and to continue being a lifeboat station church and not becoming a cosy, exclusive members club. And the first thing I want to share as a, a motivation for us is our spiritual inheritance. 
<clears throat> what do I mean by that? Well, when you've truly grasped and understood all that you have and all that you are in Jesus Christ, the magnitude of the miracle of transformation that has taken a sinner like you and me and converted us into sons and daughters of God, when you really unpack that, reflect and meditate on that, on all that God has done for you, all that you have, the promises of the Bible around, around your new life, when you do that and really just uh, 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 let it sink into your heart and mind, you will begin to find yourself saying more and more to people, I don't know about you, but I choose to follow Jesus because of how wonderful and how gracious he's been to me, how he has changed and transformed my life. I remember not long <coughs> after I'd become a Christian, um, about two years later or something like that, uh, I came across uh, some diaries. I'm not a great uh, diary writer, but I, I used to, at that moment in time, uh, was write, uh, wrote a little bit sort of sporadically every so often. And I found these diaries that I hadn't looked for, seen for ages, and I read through them, and I was shocked and horrified and disgusted at all that I, was, that I read in them uh, about the things that I used to do and get up to. And I, and I had a meeting with my pastor, uh, it so happened at that time, and I said to him, well, I found these diaries uh, of me before I was a Christian, and I just said, they're, they're awful, they're absolutely awful. Shall I throw them away? And he said, no, whoa, 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 whoa. He said, no, no, no. He said, don't you dare. Don't you dare, he said, you keep those diaries and you keep looking back on them from time to time to remind you of all that God has done in your life as a constant reminder of where you were and where God has brought you and is continue to bring you. He said, use them and reflect on the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God in your life. And I wonder this morning, if you have reflected lately on all that God has done for you, who and what you are now in Jesus Christ, think about it for a moment. Think about who you are and what you have in Jesus Christ, what the Bible says about you. You're a new creation. You're a citizen of heaven. This isn't really your home. You're a citizen of heaven. You have been justified. You've been completely forgiven. You've been made righteous. You're free forever from condemnation. You've been rescued from the dominion of Satan's rule and you've been transferred into the kingdom of Christ. You are a child of God of this universe. He's your father. You're a co-heir with Jesus Christ. What Christ stands to inherit, you stand to inherit. You're being transformed daily by the Holy Spirit more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Whatever your past, you have a wonderful future. You have heaven waiting for you. Your place there is assured. You will never experience hell. You will never taste what that is like. All true of you, if you're a Christian here this morning. I was just about to say, and if we're a Pentecostal church, we'd be saying, hallelujah. Well done. Hallelujah. We have one budding Pentecostalist. <laughs> Friends, people are desperately seeking fulfillment in life. They're trying to find it by going from one bar to another, from one lover to another, from one fix to another, from one gadget to another, only to find that none of these things bring ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction. Temporary, yes, ultimate, never. But as you develop a sense of the wonder and the gratitude about your spiritual inheritance, you will discover an increasing desire to say to others, come, 
let me introduce you to someone who can bring you the real, uh, who can bring you to real and lasting fulfilment, bring you that that you crave so much and are seeking in all the wrong places. So the first thing to help motivate us, think about and reflect and meditate on your spiritual inheritance, who you are and what you have. Secondly, um, it's a command. Our motivation should be to obey Jesus' commands. It's a command, Matthew 28, we're commanded to go out and make disciples uh, of all men and women. And 2 Corinthians 5 uh, says, He, Jesus, has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We are Christ's ambassadors, his representatives. And Jesus entrusts you and me with the message of his precious gospel. He gives us the great privilege of making him known. That means that we're God's plan A for the salvation of the world. He chooses to use fallible, weak, fickle human beings like you and I to make his gospel known to a dark and needy world. Friends, you and I are God's plan A for the gospel, for the salvation of this world. There is no plan B. There is none. Wear it. If we don't do it, it is just not going to happen. If somebody do it, didn't do it for you, you wouldn't be here this morning. If somebody didn't do it with, for me, pray for me, share with me, I wouldn't be here this morning. Wear it. God commissions you with your personality, your gifts, your abilities, alongside all of your weaknesses to speak on his behalf to a lost people who matter to him. I approached somebody at Oakley um, the other week to to come on board on on the Oakley leadership team uh, with me. I identified him and had been observing him for quite a long time. And when I approached him, he said, said, no, 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 no. I I said, I couldn't possibly. He said, I'm still still working through this in my life, working through that. I still fail here. I fail there. And I said, whoa, welcome, welcome to the club. I said, come on board and you can help me with all of those issues as well. If you're going to wait until you're perfect before you can serve or share your story, you're never going to do it. You're never going to do it. We do it alongside our gifts, personality, and our weaknesses. The greatest call of any follower of Jesus Christ is to share their faith where God has placed you. You don't need to go off to some far-flung mission field. Some are called specifically for that. 99% of us are called to share our faith where God has placed us in our families, with our friends, with our work colleagues. I came to faith through a work colleague, somebody at work, a customer of ours who I hated. Um, <laughs> shared the, we had a little, uh, little fish on, on, on his windscreen and like, Jesus is Lord. And I thought, what a weirdo. I don't want nothing to do with, with him. I, I, I refused to serve him because I thought he was so weird. I used to let my, my brother, who's much nicer and kinder than I was, uh, serve him. Um, I didn't want anything to do with him. But it was through his witness that I came to faith. This is your mission field. And we're we're commanded to witness being who we are using our own natural personalities and gifts that God has given us. We're all different. Being who you are in a very natural way through your everyday life. And friends, I don't know about you, but I find this commission very, very motivating. Because on that day... When I stand face to face before my Lord and my Saviour, I long for him to say, well done, 
good and faithful ambassador of mine. I earmarked a group of people who desperately needed you. They needed your personality. They needed your witness. They needed your age factor. They needed your sense of humor. I commissioned you to be my spokesperson and you were faithful. Well done, good and faithful ambassador. Don't you long for, for Jesus to say that to you when you come face to face with him? If you don't, ask him to give you a longing for that. Ask him to give you a longing to hear those words pass from his lips. So what should motivate us? Spiritual inheritance is a command. We're called to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, <coughs> oh, I missed that one, sorry. That was the previous one. Thirdly, <coughs> the reality of hell. It's probably what motivates me the most. Whatever happened to hell? Not politically correct, is it? Not supposed to speak about it. God's love, God's faithfulness, God's peace, joy, forgiveness. Yeah, not hell. Not wrath, judgment, separation from God. Dirty word, hell. The truth is that hell is real and real people go there for eternity. And the reality of hell was a major theme in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Why did Jesus teach from early morning until late at night? Why did he have such a sense of urgency about his message? Why did he endure the ridicule that he did? Why? Because he knew that people were on the road towards hell. It broke his heart and it motivated him to spread his gospel of grace. And we read over and over again how Jesus sometimes would even break down and weep when his message was rejected. In Luke 16, we, we, we see an example of the horror and reality of hell. We're told uh, the parable of the rich man who lived in splendor. <coughs> and a poor man named Lazarus who was starving to death at his gate. They both died. Lazarus went to heaven. The rich man ended up in hell, not because he was rich, but because he was, he was an unbeliever. And such was his torment, the rich man's torment, that he pleads to go back uh, and warn his family. And in verse, it culminates with verse 27, where he says, I beg you, I beg you, send Lazarus then. If nothing else, send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Friends, five minutes in hell turned an uncaring believer into a committed evangelist. Crying out, somebody has to warn my brothers that hell is real. Please, will you do whatever it takes to keep them from ending up here with me? Anything, whatever it takes. What motivates me personally to tell people about Jesus? And I'm not great at it. And I don't always have the boldness that I should or seize the opportunities that I should. Far from it. But when I do, what motivates me? Part of the reason is because I think that Christianity is the greatest way to live and the greatest way to die. But my greatest motivation to tell others about Jesus is because I believe in hell. 
I've been in social gatherings, I've been in weddings, I've been in parties, and sometimes it just hits me just there as I look around at everybody, and I just think, wow, you're having such a great time, but I just want to stand up on the table sometimes and just say, but do you really know what's going to happen if you don't turn to Jesus Christ? And I have an aching in my spirit. And it brings me to tears sometimes. Not as much as it, as it used to, I confess. My greatest motivation is to tell us because I believe in hell. And the thought that people, people that I know and care about, may end up there. And that horrifies me and it spurs me on. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians says this. <clears throat> if there is no resurrection, if there is no heaven or hell, then let's eat, drink and be merry. If there's no judgment, why do I risk my life? Why do I take beatings? Why do I suffer in prison? Why do I do all of this, he says. Friends, if there is no hell, then let's just live how we want. Let's do what we want to do, say what we want to do. Let's just do it. Why bother with all the back-breaking service around this church? Why bother to give? Why bother to have a 24-7 prayer, prayer week? Why evangelize? Why preach this sermon? If there is no hell, then let's just pack up and all go home. What's the point of it? Friends, what we're doing in this church is serious, serious business. Whatever it takes to help people off the road that leads to hell and get on the road that leads to heaven, whatever it takes, it's worth it. <clears throat> At Oakley, I always say we don't have a lid on an evangelism budget. Whatever we have to spend on spreading the gospel, we, I'll say spend it. I don't care. Just spend it. Give it. We don't charge for um, uh, anything, for non-believers, for non-Christian activity, for people who come to, uh, non-Christians that come to anything we do. We never charge anything for it. It's all free. Anything. Whatever it takes. May none of us ever forget that the stakes are sky high. It's eternal life and death that are hanging in the balance here. We are friends, we have, uh, we have no right. We have no right to withhold the words of eternal life from people. You have no right to hold back what God has done for you. You have no right to keep it to yourself. You have no right to keep your story of faith to yourself. It's not yours to keep. I would rather have a person in heaven thank me for pestering them and, and, uh, and bugging them about Jesus than a person in hell cry out, why? Why? Why didn't you take a chance and tell me? All those months, all those years that I knew you, why were you so embarrassed? Why were you so ashamed of your faith? Why? Why did you not warn me? How could you? How could you have done that to me? If only you spoke and shared. Friends, the reality of hell should motivate all of us to do our best to steer people off that pathway. And I'm preaching to myself here, as always, first and foremost, before anybody else today. So please, let's not become complacent. Please, let's not become a cosy club for our members. Please, let's continue to seek to always be a lifeboat station and prevent, that prevents people drowning in the darkness of hell. <clears throat> So as we close, we'll begin to close. 
A word of application. How can we begin to fulfill this commission? How can we draw people to Jesus Christ? Well, the first thing, obviously, is obviously to share your story. You haven't got to be a great evangelist. Uh, you haven't got to go to Bible college. You haven't got to know your, your, uh, your Bible inside out. You haven't got to be, a great, be great at apologetics or anything. You just share your story, pure and simple, even if it's messed up sometimes. Just share what God has done. No one, nobody can argue with your story. But our biggest challenge... I would suggest to you this morning is to live lives that reflect Jesus Christ. There is nothing more appealing than a Christ-centered life. It's powerful. I know we're not perfect, and I know we're going to slip and fail, etc., but seek to live a life that reflects Jesus Christ. It's what drew me to Christ. I saw Jesus lived out in those who witnessed to me. They, They professed their faith, and then I saw it. I saw it, and it was deeply, deeply attractive to me, even though I couldn't fully understand it. I knew that they had something that I didn't, and I wanted it. I wanted it. (coughs) It was incredibly attractive. So the challenge... (coughs) Excuse me. The challenge, (coughs) the question that we're left with here this morning is, is there a difference in the way that you live your life? Why should people take any notice of what you're saying? Is there a difference? Too much, in my opinion, the church of today, instead of becoming something different to society, is increasingly becoming more and more like our society under the false notion that we will attract people if we're more like them. Biggest load of rubbish. Biggest load of rubbish. People will be attracted because we're different to what they've got out there. Not the same. They're going to get more of the same in here. Why should they bother coming? They want to see something different in the lives of believers. Not the same. Makes me mad. It really does. I just Sorry. Why should people take any notice of what you're saying? If you're a Christian here this morning... Make no mistake that the non-Christians around you will have their hypocrisy radar scanning your life 24-7, observing your life. They may make out they're not interested in your faith. They may ridicule it until you slip up and then they're there to pick you up. and Ah, call yourself a Christian. Ah, so is that what Christians do then, eh? I've shared this story before, but I want to share it again. So those of you who've heard it before... You know, it's, it's a good reminder, but um, it, it, it was, I found it very powerful. It had a powerful effect on my life. Some of you may know that I used to be a street trader uh, many years ago before I was um, <clears throat> a minister. I sold all manner of things, um, women's wear, men's wear, uh, underwear. At one time, I, I was referred to as the knicker-selling vicar. And on this particular market that I, that, that I first arrived at, street market in the East End, I said I introduced myself to my neighbour. Uh, he, w- he was selling china, a huge mountain of a big bloke like that. Um, and um, uh, I made myself known to him. And over the coming weeks and whatever, I, he, he found out that I was a Christian. I told him I was a Christian. I go to church and whatever. And he said, whoa, whoa, whoa. He said, I don't want to hear anything about your Jesus. He said, I'm not interested in what you have to say about your Jesus or your faith whatsoever. I don't want to know. He said, all I'm going to do is watch you 
and that will tell me all I need to know about your Jesus. And I thought, whoa, <laughs> don't watch too close, please. I thought, it was scary, but it really, really like shook me up. And then obviously the other traders all around me, they, they all knew that I was a, a Christian as well over, as the weeks and months went by. And one day, uh, I was selling menswear at the time, and I used to have a, a flat um, boarded store. I used to have like, it was, it was massive actually. It was about from here all the way right down to there. And it was stacked with um, cheap jumpers. I discovered a manufacturer in Manchester that I could buy direct from and got really cheap jumpers. I used to stack them up high uh, and sell them cheap. And I would be mobbed. Literally, I was mobbed. I used to sell hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of jumpers uh, throughout the week. And uh, people around me taking money, hand over fist, etc. And then suddenly, as I picked up this jumper to serve somebody, I found a brown wage packet. Now, for a lot of you younger ones won't know what that is, but for, uh, for some, of, some of you more mature <laughs> folk will remember that in days gone by, we never used to get paid straight into our bank, monthly or whatever. You used to get paid weekly. And if you're a, a, a church minister, very weekly. But... Um, <laughs> And, and used to get a, a, your wages used to get paid every week in cash in a brown wage packet. So it would have your gross pay, then it would have your national insurance, uh, tax, etc. And then on the bottom it would have your net pay and you'll be paid in pound notes in the envelope, sealed. There's your weekly wage. And I found this, um, this pa- wage packet there. I mean, going back... I don't know, nearly 20-plus years ago, 30 years ago, I can't remember, about 30-odd years ago, I guess. And it was jam-packed. It was full of money. It was really fat. Uh, And I looked at the the thing, and it said it was something ridiculous for that time. It was something like £400 net it had on it like that. And I thought, oh, my word, I found it there. And then I looked around. I thought, what do I do? I can't say, has anybody lost £400? Oh, yeah, it's mine. Um, so I started shouting, has anybody lost anything? And people just stopped and said, you know, can you please all just look in your bags, um, in your coats, and just let me know if you've dropped anything. Is anything missing from your person? Just pause, etc., and have a look. So everybody's like, no, no, no. no, nobody had like, and I'm standing there. I said, check again, have a look, check again. And then as I said, check again, from the corner of my eyes, I saw a group of blokes standing to my side, all laughing their heads off, and pointing at me, and I looked round, and it was a whole group of street traders all looking at me, watching and laughing. They had planted the wage packet there and then stood back to see what I would do with it, whether I would keep it or whether I would try to return the money. Friends, if you're going to witness effectively to family, friends, work colleagues, there must be a change in your life. They have to see. They have to hear your words, but they have to see as well. They will know whether the thing that you're professing has affected you personally, if it's resulted in a change of values and behavior. Doesn't mean you're going to be perfect, but they need to see that you're serious about your faith, that you're trying to be different. They will see and know all about the things that you read and watch, the way we talk about people, the language you use, the way we treat and speak uh, to our spouses, our children. They will look at your, uh, your, how ethical your work practices are. I remember when I first became a Christian, I'd only been like, Christian two weeks? <clears throat> Something like that. And I'd booked to go on a, 
uh, a lad's holiday south of France, me and the whole group of my friends. And um, <clears throat> I knew that I had to speak to him before we go, uh, before we went, because I, I was usually the instigator of all things unwholesome, immoral, and often illegal. And I thought, I, I thought I, they need to know that I'm not going to be like that on this holiday. So I gathered them together and I, and I said, look, I'm, you know, I'm not going to go. I'm still coming on holiday, but you need to know I've become a Christian um, and I don't do this thing and I don't do that. I'm not going to do any of this. And they just started laughing and, 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 and almost abusing me, saying, don't, we don't want to hear that rubbish. What a load of rubbish. What the biggest load of rubbish. Poacher turn, gamekeeper, all that stuff. I was, you know, we're not, we're not interested. They just, they just laughed at it. They just laughed it off and thought it was just the biggest load of rubbish. And we went off on holiday, and they soon discovered that when we were on holiday, I would not get involved or instigate on any of the sort of stuff that they would normally expect from me. So they just suddenly saw me draw back. If you want to do all that, if you want to do this and that, you go ahead, but I'm out. I'll just to go off and do something else quietly and whatever. And then they realized, they saw with their eyes that what I said with my lips, there was a reality to it, that there was change there. Things were different. They saw it, and then they started to ask me about my faith. Then they started to listen, and then I was able to talk to them about it. So seek to live a life. I wasn't not perfect, but they could see that I was trying. So seek to live a life that reflects Christ in all that you do, in all that you say, because it's powerful. So as we conclude, do you feel pressurized by all of this? I do. (laughs) But I just want to qualify what I've said by pointing out that none of us are called to convert anyone just to share our story. That's all you're called to do in your normal, everyday life, in your natural way. Just share. I remember years ago, uh, the great American, South American evangelist, Luis Palau, is the South American Billy Graham. He was over here and he was doing a mission to London at Queen's Park Rangers Football Stadium for a whole week, I think it was. Um, or maybe it was two, I don't know. But anyway, uh, and thousands and thousands of people came to faith uh, during that time. And he was interviewed on, um, on TV at the end of the, of the mission. And the interviewer said, so, uh, uh, Luis, it's, uh, um, it's, been a, you know, it's been a great success, the, the, your mission to London. Would you class it as one of your uh, greatest successes ever? referring to the conversions, the thousands of conversions that have taken place as a result. And Luis Palau said, yeah, it's been an overwhelming successful mission because the gospel of Jesus Christ has been preached. And that was the benchmark for him for success. He didn't even mention the thousands of converts. He was called to preach the gospel. Conversion wasn't his department any more than it is yours. That's a supernatural uh, thing. Uh, we're simply the vessels. Um, we, can't, we can't convert anybody. We're the vessels, we're the channels, we're the signposts pointing people to Christ. Let me introduce you to my best friend. Let me tell you how he has changed my life, how he has healed me, the impact that he's made, etc. Point them. That's all that Lewis was doing, and he did that, and that was success to him. And if we do that, we're not responsible for how people react. We're just responsible 
for being the signpost. We proclaim the message through our words and actions. God will do what we cannot do. He performs the miracle of conversion. He removes the scales from people's eyes. It's a partnership with God. Praise God. Thank God with him as the senior partner. So friends, as we close, we've seen great blessing here at St. Barnabas with many, many people come into faith in Christ and lives transformed. And that's wonderful and we thank God for that. And it's good to look back and be reminded about how he has blessed us. It builds up, it builds us up and it encourages our faith. But we must never rest only on what God has done yesterday. We're always to continue looking forward to what he will do today and then tomorrow. And my prayer is that this church will be a church that continues to draw many to Jesus Christ as that and that as a priority. It's why we exist. It's why the Lord first planted this church. We must continue to be a lifeboat station. So I want to encourage you this week to step out and seize the opportunities to share Jesus Christ's love with the people that he brings your way. Ask him for the boldness, the words, the wisdom, and the compassion you need. I need to do that nearly every day. I need to ask for boldness. I need to ask for the words. I need to ask for the sensitivity. You know, we leak, don't we? We need to ask for it all the time. And as you do, I believe that both you and this church will continue to receive the blessing and the favour of God. Whenever the Bible says that whenever his word goes out, it never returns to him void. And I want to always believe that the Lord always touches and convicts each one of us in some way or another. And some of you this morning will know that the Lord has touched you, he's convicted you. So there always needs to be a response because the word of God is the living word and it's a life-changing word. And when the spirit of God convicts us, we need to respond. And this is a very safe place for us to do that. And I want to pray a blanket prayer in a moment. But I want to invite a response from us this morning. Now, can I invite the ministry team, if we have a ministry team, just to come forward, please? Wherever you are, to begin to come forward. And if this morning you've been listening and you think, yeah, I need, just like me, I need more boldness. I need more compassion. I need a greater sense of urgency. Lord, give me a greater sense of urgency about those, uh, for those around me who are on the path to hell. Lord, give me the words to say. Lord, will you come and equip me and anoint me afresh to live a life that reflects Jesus Christ? If you would like a fresh anointing, a fresh outpouring of one or all of those things this morning. Can I invite you just to come forward now? So we'd love to pray for you for a fresh outpouring, boldness, urgency, the Lord to anoint your lips, to live a life that reflects Jesus Christ.